0: Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, and Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Elizabeth Barnes. Elizabeth is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Virginia, and she's the author of a fabulous new book titled The Minority Body a theory of disability. Uh, The book is published uh, by Oxford University Press. Now, in this book, Elizabeth explores a broad range of philosophical questions concerning our conceptualization of disability. What is disability? What makes it such that a condition is a disability rather than, say, say a disease or merely a, a way of being different? Is disability always and intrinsically bad? Are disabilities things that are to be cured? What role should the testimony and experience of disabled persons play in our thinking about these questions? Now, Elizabeth argues that, at least for a range of conditions characterized as disabilities, disabilities are merely ways in which bodies can be different, not ways of being intrinsically badly off. Now, there's a lot to talk about, uh, even given that little statement of um, the, the, the core of Elizabeth's view. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But before going into those details, uh, let's begin uh, where we usually do, namely uh, by greeting our guest. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing really well. I'm really excited to be talking to you. Thank you so much uh, for, uh, for having me on your program.
0: Well, and thank you uh, for joining us today. Um, so we usually begin, uh, Elizabeth, uh, with with the author. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how uh, you got into this uh, this project?
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, as you said, I um, am a philosophy professor at uh, the University of Virginia, um, and I guess how I uh, how I got into this project uh, was a little bit of a um, of a, of a roundabout way of, uh, of, uh, coming to a book on disability. Um, my, uh, my background, my graduate training, what I wrote my sort of first published papers on, um, is actually in analytic metaphysics. Um, so I did, uh, metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of language. That was what a lot of my, my training was in. Um, and, uh, so definitely, uh, a little bit further afield uh from this kind of thing the kind of thing um that I'm doing now I was always really interested um in the philosophy of disability uh but it was something I was I guess I was a little hesitant to work on um partly because I am myself a person with a disability I'm a disabled person and uh for some reason I felt like that sort of meant that I shouldn't do the philosophy of disability because <laughs> I, I wasn't going to be able to do it right or I was going to be too personally invested in it or too uh, emotional about it or I don't know it just um, it was something that I that I felt like I was very interested in um, and I was interested in disability studies more broadly the sort of broader cross humanities uh, conversation um, that's that's disability studies but um, but I, I wasn't sure that that was the kind of thing that 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 would be appropriate for me to uh, to do uh, philosophy about um, but I, I, f- I found myself continually um, being drawn towards it and it being something that I wanted to do um, and especially I, I kept reading papers uh, that I I just felt I was like no that's people are people are saying things that 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 I that I feel like aren't resonant um, with with Partly with the broader um, conversation and, and disability studies, but also just with you know my experience as somebody um, who is a disabled person, this just doesn't seem to make sense. Um, mm. Felt like the conversation was missing something, um, and so eventually I uh, I couldn't keep my mouth shut. <laughs> I started the work uh, started to work on disability, and um, a book came out of that pretty quickly. Um, and then I guess, uh, so this book is, uh, published, uh, in OUP series studies in feminist philosophy mm-hmm. and, uh, my interest in feminist philosophy actually came directly out of my interest in, um, disability and the philosophy of disability, because I found that there were a lot of, uh, There were a lot of really close issues and similar issues and sort of thinking about the way we think about disabled bodies now it was really helpful to think about the way um certainly historically the female body was kind of pathologized and thought of as defective and um that kind of thing and there were a lot of resources and tools within feminist philosophy that were already there um, and were helpful to me and certainly i found a lot of the information feminist philosophy, a little bit more helpful thinking about disability than I did maybe a lot of the, um, resources in bioethics, which is probably how, uh, uh, disability centric conversations and philosophy are more familiarly conceptualized. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where the project came from. Um, it, it came from, um, uh, me sort of thinking about these things and eventually getting, uh, getting myself to a place where, uh, where I was annoyed enough that I wanted to say something. Um, just it just, it, it, um, I think also getting to a place where I felt like, you know, um, yeah, this is something that's a personal topic for me, but, uh, but also disability is personal for everybody. Um, because you know, people who are non-disabled are pretty emotionally attached (laughs) to being non-disabled. They, uh, that's, that's just, it's a human thing, um, to be personally invested in this. Um, so I felt like, uh, you know, I could get to a place where, yeah, I can I can still make arguments about this. Um, so it was getting over that hurdle and that barrier that I think being personally invested is not any sort of barrier to doing uh, a good philosophy um, that that allowed me to uh to want to do
0: this right I, I suspect that there's probably a lot of really good philosophy that secretly maybe not in every case secretly or yeah. maybe overtly has agitation as its <laughs> as its origin um, yeah. well great um, so why don't we why don't we turn to the uh, to the argument of the book then, having heard uh about uh, how you got into it um, so obviously I think um the the the, the first issue on the agenda Um, is um, the sort of conceptual issue which um, is perhaps in some ways uh, closer to um – uh, your, your, your original training in philosophy, the sort of metaphysics and epistemology and, and maybe some of the philosophy of language issues about terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- the book begins um, with, uh, you know, with the, the, the conceptual questions. What are we talking about? Is there one thing called disability or are there just many things uh, that are individual disabilities with um, maybe nothing more than family resemblances connecting them? Are there clusters where there are more um, uh, close conceptual connections? Um so can you tell us a little bit sort of about some of the I mean there's a range of sort of conceptual issues that get uh disentangled and analyzed uh, early in the book can can you run us through some of those arguments and then I might just ask uh uh um as a follow up sort of you know w- w- what's disability anyway <laughs> yeah.
1: um yeah so um first of all I, one of my starting point is that um I wanted to focus exclusively on um physical disability so not assuming that there is any such thing as physical disability i just don't want to assume that anything i'm going to say sort of subsequently in the book is going to hold true of what we might think of as other types of uh Mm -hmm. disability so maybe psychosocial disability um or cognitive disability i also don't want to assume we i think we tend to assume that there is this tripartite distinction um so there's this uh there's this broad heading, disability, and then there are three types. Uh, so psychosocial, uh, cognitive, and physical. I don't think there's much of an argument that anything like this uh, classificatory system is, in fact, the case. Um, and I think that uh, one of the things, especially as someone um, who is physically disabled, um, that we need to be really careful of is not doing what you often, what has definitely been done a lot in the history of um uh, investigations into disability, which is treating physical disability as a paradigm case and then kind of assuming that what you would say goes for physical disability uh, goes for other types of disability. Um, uh, Eva Kite, uh, a wonderful philosopher of disability, Eva Kite. Um, has the lovely phrase where she says that, uh, we need to understand disability as a big tent. Um, (laughs) And we need to understand that there's a lot of heterogeneity and a lot of different uh, experiences. So I definitely uh, just sort of didn't want to tackle, didn't want to attempt to tackle the question of whether there is this thing, disability, that unifies um, the experiences of someone uh, who's a wheelchair user uh, with someone who uh, deals with uh, bipolar disorder with someone uh, who deals with autism versus uh, someone who has uh, uh, down syndrome, you know, <laughs> um, that, that was, <laughs> that was a bigger uh, question than I felt uh, personally equipped to tackle. Um, so I wanted to start with the case of physical disability. Um, and ask the question of whether there's any sense in which the things that we label physical disabilities can be said to have anything in common with each other, whether there's a kind here. We sort of talk about it as though there's a kind there, right? You know, the thing that these, uh, that the disabilities have, physical disabilities have in common with each other is that that they're disabilities. Um, But when you actually look at the range of physical conditions that we call physical disabilities, that's weird. it's weird that we think that these things all have in, um, something in common with each other, because you know, you look at uh, achondroplasia and you compare it to multiple sclerosis, and you compare that to uh, congenital deafness, and you compare that to spinal cord injury. Um, it's 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 really non obvious. Right. Um, what if anything? Um, all these things, all these very, very disparate physical conditions have in common with each other. Um, so I think for anybody who's interested in these broader questions of disability, uh, like you know, what's the connection between disability and well-being or is disability something that makes you worse off or the, you know, the kind of questions that I wanted to tackle, um, the biggest question that you have to start with is this sort of uh, specter of error theory um, which is just, is there any, you know, why shouldn't we just say that there is nothing that is disability? Um,
0: there's no there there. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Um, so I, th- I think that's the sort of lurking question in the background. Um, so I'm halfway sympathetic to uh, the the idea that there's nothing that these uh, various physical conditions have in common. Because I think there's probably there's not a natural kind mm-hmm. that is uh, disability. I don't think there's any, it, we can point to any sort of natural feature or natural property or anything like this that unifies all the very disparate physical conditions that we call disabilities. Um, so one of the things I try to do at the beginning of the book is just look at some attempts to explain in naturalistic terms, um, what unifies uh all the physical conditions that we think of as disabilities as disabilities, like what it is that makes a physical condition, a disability. Um, and kind of explain why I think those accounts are probably going to be doomed to failure. Um, they're either going to overgeneralize or undergeneralize. Um, sometimes kind of both at the same time. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
0: Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I think probably the most, um, the most common way of trying to explain what physical disabilities have in common with each other is via some idea of normal function. Right. So the disabilities are the, the departures from normal function. Um, you have to immediately uh, complicate that a little bit because uh, there are a lot of ways of being departures from normal function that pretty clearly aren't disabilities because You know, your average elite athlete is a departure from normal function, um, in various interesting ways. Um, so you have this idea of negative departure from normal function, um, where negative isn't meant to be something normative. It's meant to be the kind of departure from normal function that is going to impede long term survival and reproduction. Um, and that's meant. So the idea is that disabilities and maybe also diseases. I think a lot of naturalistic accounts don't necessarily see a, a difference between disability and disease. Um, so disabilities are going to be the thing that um, are departures from normal function that um, are going to impede long-term survival and reproduction. Um, and I talk about various cases in the book, but I think this kind of account, this more sophisticated account, is still not going to work as a theory of what disability is, um, because there are some disabilities that in it seems like the reason they've been passed on, the reason they exist, is because they're adaptive Mm -hmm. in some circumstances, so they certainly don't seem to have impeded reproduction. Um, It's also the case that it looks like there's plenty of things that might be departures from normal function that impede long term survival and reproduction, um, but which we don't think of as disabilities. Right. Um, and so it looks like the, the normal function account is going to cast its net too broad. Right. Um, it might include a lot of the things that we think of as disabilities, but it's also going to include a lot of other things. That we don't think of as disabilities, so it's not really getting at what is characteristic um, of of disability. Um, I think moving on from there, people have uh, people who want to say that there is a thing that is disability have um, moved to the idea that uh, okay, so if there's a kind. Um, and it's not a naturalistic kind, uh, we need to say that disability is socially constructed. Um, and socially const- uh, social construction, of course, is this term um, that gets thrown around a lot and people mean very, very different things by it. Um, I think the most common way, um, certainly within disability studies more broadly for people to say that disability is socially constructed, um, is for people to make a distinction between disability and impairment. Right. Uh, so the idea is that, um, basically, this is an attempt to do the same thing for disability that in feminist philosophy people, uh, or just feminist theory more broadly, people have done for sex and gender. Right. So there is uh, biological differences between bodies that have to do with reproduction. Um, That roughly is sex. And then there's the social meaning of sex, and that's gender. Um, So people have attempted to do the same thing for disability, so there's various physical conditions. Those are impairments. And then there's the social disadvantage imposed on some bodies because of contingent ways that our society is set up that privileges some bodies and disadvantages others, Um, and that's disability. Um, So this is the kind of model of disability that's offered by uh, like the social model of disability, for Mm -hmm. example. Um, So on views like this, um, disability is the disadvantage that um, is the social disadvantage that arises um, from the way we treat certain people. Um, So the the sort of slogan or catchphrase that gets tossed around a lot is that disability is not a property of bodies. Right. Um, There's been a bunch of pushback against views like this uh, for various different reasons. Um, It's it's really hard to characterize what the difference is between disability and impairment, um, what exactly the impairments are supposed to be. Um, There's also a big worry that this type of view makes disability overly disembodied. Right. Um, disability just is the sort of, uh, disadvantage that you accrue from, um, the way people treat you. Um, and the idea is that impairments in an ideal situation would just be sort of nuisances maybe, but they, they, they wouldn't have this dramatic effect. Um, the dramatic effect that they have is entirely due to social prejudice. Um, and you might think that's plausible for some disabilities, but not for all of them. Um. So there's been various worries about this. So the, the sort of uh, model that I tried to argue for was a uh, more moderate version of social constructionism, basically, where <laughs> um, disability is a property of bodies. It's just a socially constructed property of bodies. So, you know, there are um, objective features of bodies that make it the case that you are disabled. But the reason that we think that a certain set of, uh, objective physical features are the set that is the disabilities, the set that we sort of salient, saliently mark out and say, ah, these are the disabilities, um, these things have something in common with each other um, is because of social facts rather mm-hmm. than natural facts it's because, you know, it's because of some arbitrary decisions about how we decided to group people together um, we think, ah, all of these physical features go together and um, in a way that's interesting. Um, There's no sort of naturalistic fact that explains why all these features go together. So, you know, whether you're disabled it is in some sense an objective fact about what your body is like. But the reason that that fact about what your body is like is particularly socially salient is because of how we think about people rather than um, sort of objective facts about how some bodies are more similar to other bodies or something like
0: that. Can I, um, can, can I ask a, a just a quick question uh, just to, to clarify um, in my own mind sort of the distinction between uh, the view that you're laying out, the uh, your own view, and um, the more straightforward social constructivist views? Yes. Um, so the social constructivist about disability seems to be committed to the thought that um, if... Uh, social institutions and norms and practices and whatever else we want to put into that uh, category um, were were uh, changed or maybe were made just or were rendered consistent with equality, um, then there'd be no disability. Is that, right? Yes. that is, is right? But your view doesn't hold that? Is that true that there would be disability guess, even if we got all the institutional stuff right?
1: Yeah. my view My view is kind of silent on that. It's perfectly consistent with my view that there could still be – social significance to disability, um, completely in the absence of um disadvantage. Gotcha. Um because it could just be the case, you know, you might think even in even in a world where we had a lot more accommodation, where we had a lot more accessibility, it's still the case that people um with certain kinds of physical conditions are gonna do things differently, right? right? Their bodies are unusual in some Interesting way, right? Um, they're probably going to navigate the world a little bit differently, um, and that could still be socially significant, um, even if it doesn't include tons of disadvantage. Gotcha, right? Yeah,
0: right. great. Um, please continue. Tell tell us more. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah, so I think sometimes people have this idea about social constructionist views of disability that you're saying, oh. Um, but somehow that there is no objective reality to disability or something like that somehow to say that something is socially constructed is to say that it isn't real um, And I think you can say that something is socially constructed and that it's real
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, And you know, of course, it's a real if someone is blind It is a real and objective fact about them um, that they cannot see um, And if someone is a, you know, has a spinal cord injury um it is a real and objective fact about their body, um, that they, you know, have this particular injury that they have. Um, I think the what's important about a social constructionist analysis is one pushing the idea that there's, there's a lot more to, uh, being disabled than just having a particular physical feature. Um, but also that the reason why, uh, We think that these, you know, we think that the uh, blindness has something special in common uh, with spinal cord injury, has something uh, special in common with multiple sclerosis, has something special in common with achondroplasia, is very much to do with how we think of certain types of bodies as normal and then (laughs) certain types of bodies as, you know, defective or departures from normal um, rather than, um, you know, objective similarities that uh, that very wide range of bodies has between each other. And of course, that's not to say that there's no objective uh, reality to the fact that, you know, if you're blind, you can't see. And uh, if you have a spinal cord injury, there are things that, you know, you won't be able to do with your legs and uh, things like that. That's all totally real. you don't have to deny uh, the objective uh, reality of the physical conditions that we associate with disability to then say, at the same time, it's more of a social fact about us that we assign these physical conditions, the particular type of social meaning that we do. Um, so that's that's kind of the view that I was arguing for a sort of middle ground. Yeah, whether you're disabled is a fact about your body. Um, but the fact that we group things together as Um, disabilities is uh, more of a fact about us than it's a natural kind or something like that.
0: Great. Um, So given that kind of analysis of, you know, what, 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 Disabilities are. Um, you've got a, a, a you know a new a new issue emerges, uh, yeah. the, the <laughs> uh, which is um, sort of what's the significance of disability? And um, here you're, you're you're keen to um, uh, to advance a conception of disability as um, a mere difference rather than as a bad difference. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that particularly about the arguments of a, why why you why you're keen to deny that uh being uh, that 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 a, that a body's being disabled um you want to deny that a body's being disabled is a way of it's being badly off
1: right yeah um yes yeah, so i mean so i think probably the central question of the book is the connection between um The things we think of as disabilities, so the connection um, between having one of these physical conditions and uh, well-being, because it's certainly exactly as you're right, uh, exactly as you say, it doesn't fall out from a uh, categories being socially constructed that it's, uh, you know, it doesn't have some sort of substantive negative effect on your well-being. There are plenty of categories that are broadly socially constructed um, that you know have a terrible effect on your well-being and it would be better if we could make the world a place such that uh you know people would no longer fall into these categories like uh refugee or domestic violence victim or um things like this
0: well think of all the race think of all the race theory that <laughs> yeah,
1: that yeah. That, that
0: is social constructivist precisely because they're interested in counteracting the, the negative effects <laughs> right
1: well i mean or like hasslinger's view of gender is basically yeah. the goal of feminism is to get rid of women that's right um, yeah. I
0: mean, not... <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange way to put it but yeah <laughs>
1: yeah but uh, yeah no the, the upshot is that it would be better if there weren't um if people didn't fall into these categories. Yeah. Right. Um, so um, basically, um, I think certainly it's common sense, right? Uh, for whatever that's worth. that um, having a disability is something that um, is, the, is the kind of thing that makes you worse off. Um, At least there's a tight correlation between having a disability um, and uh, having your life be less good than it could be. (laughs) And certainly, I think we're very familiar with the idea that you can have a disability and lead a good life. But we tend to understand that in terms of, oh, well, you know, disabled people, they um, they overcome the badness of their disability or disabled people. They persevere through the badness of their disability. And that teaches them, I don't know, like wonderful things about patience or, uh, fortitude or something like that. Um, and those are certainly the the familiar narratives about disability that we have.
0: Or despite, right. They, they live well, despite.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, Despite
1: despite of rather than just living well. Right. Um, and I think that this been a, a very common thing. If you are disabled and you seem fine, um, people seem to go out of your, their way to tell you that you're that you're inspirational um, in, in ways that you're just <laughs> living a disabled life and, you know, it's just quite a normal life. It's very confusing to be told that you're inspirational. Um, yeah. So one of the so sort of first step of uh, the argument that I try to make is that it's actually really, really um, difficult once you sit down and think about it. Um to uh, put flesh on the bones of that common sense idea. Um, so what what do people really mean or what what are we really saying when we think that um, there is a negative connection between disability and well-being or that disability is the kind of thing that makes you worse off? Um, because I mean, if you have a very specific theory of well-being that's sort of broadly, um, a very strong objectivist Aristotelian theory of well-being, or something like that. Um, then it's not too hard. You can say so. You know, um, there are a bunch of intrinsic goods that you need to have in order to have, to have like a fully flourishing life. Um, and if you are disabled, maybe you're missing out on one of those goods or several of those goods. Um, so you sort of, uh, you know, you you're been moved down a couple of rungs on the great ladder of well-being um so that's the sense in which you're worse off. But that's mm-hmm. a very strong view of well-being, and certainly that's not the sense of well-being in which a lot of people who are parties of this conversation are talking about well-being. Um, so it gets a lot more complicated if maybe you've got a hybrid uh, theory of well-being or a desire satisfaction theory of well-being or a um, you know a preference-based theory of well-being or something like that to say exa- exactly what the common sense um, view is supposed to be or indeed what motivates the common sense view um, of well-being. Because certainly there is a lot of uh, empirical evidence that suggests that disabled people don't rate their life satisfaction as um, particularly different than non-disabled people, Um, though there's a lot of evidence that suggests that non-disabled people um, predict that disabled people will say that they're worse off and this kind of thing. Now, of course, you might just be broadly skeptical about the project of hedonic psychology where people go around and uh you know just interview people and say, on a scale of one to ten, how happy are you? Um so there, there's questions there. There's also a lot of empirical evidence that suggests that well-being in disabled people doesn't track what we expect it to track. So we expect it to track um the sort of what you might think of as uh, what often gets called objective severity. Um in disability, and instead it tends to track things like uh, social support um, and the person's attitude towards their disability. Um, for example, whether they you know they have a sense of acceptance of uh, of their disability and things like that. Um, so, in that sense, it's not clear um, what the evidence for the common sense view is supposed to be. Um, it's also not clear why we think it's so common sense that it is being disabled that's bad for you rather than being disabled in a social context in which it's actually pretty difficult to be disabled um because certainly you know um if you look at the you know all this the studies that they uh that they did on um you know well-being and anxiety and depression rates for gay people in the 1980s um It would be weird to conclude from that, that, um, you know, being gay is something that by itself just makes you worse off. Um, Right. It was pretty obviously the case that, uh, uh, there were, uh, there were other factors going on. Um, it wasn't being gay that made you worse off. It was, uh being gay in a really homophobic society at the start of the AIDS epidemic. Um, So when you consider just how hard it is for so many disabled people to find work um, because of the difficulty of accommodation, um, the crisis uh, for a lot of disabled people getting adequate health care, the social stigma about disability, um, how common it is uh, if a person acquires disability for their spouse to leave them. these kind of things, um, so when you look at all the social factors that go into people's experience of disability, um, yeah, no wonder it might be pretty difficult uh, for people to um, experience disability in that, in that social situation. Um, it looks like the, the claim that we need to make is something like this is, is a counterfactual one. The claim that we need to make is a counterfactual one that says um, disability would still have this robust correlation um, to negative effects on well-being, even in the you know even in a world that was much more accommodating of disabled people, even in a world that had much less stigma about disability, um, and that looks like it. That looks like an interesting, uh, a a much less obvious claim. It's interesting. I think that people think that that is so common sense, um, because counterfactual judgments about worlds that are pretty different than ours. I don't know. I'm not particularly confident (laughs) judgments like that.
0: Yeah. Right. Um,
1: So, uh, so I, so I think it's interesting that we, we think that it's that common sense. Um,
0: Right. And it's even a common, it's a judgment about a counterfactual about what's common sense to think. It's not even a judge, right? Yeah. It's not even a judgment. What's correct. It's like, what's yeah. common sense to think yeah. in these highly counterfactual, which I have even less confidence in.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like, w- 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 what's meant to be obvious. Yeah. That's right. Um, so I think that, um, and this is, this is part of the part of the argument for what I, I call the mere difference view, which is that basically disability is something that, um, certainly absolutely makes you different. um, but doesn't by itself make you worse off. Um, so basically, I deny that it's characteristic of disability that there's any sort of um, negative or, for that matter, positive um, connection between disability and well being. Um, disability doesn't by itself or intrinsically have any sort of robust connection um, to well being. Um, that's what I take to be the characteristic feature of what I call um, mere difference views of disability. Disability absolutely makes you unusual, um, but it doesn't uh, by itself or automatically make you worse off. Um, So I think one of the reasons why people find that idea so, uh, I suppose, uh, counterintuitive or maybe um, I think it's, it's just sort of obviously wrong is that they, they have this understanding of Disability, where disability is just sort of like, is just a lack or just a privation. Mm-hmm. So they think, you know, um, here's all the things a normal person can do. Take a little bit away. That's the experience of disability. Um, so obviously that that's got to be less good, right? Um, obviously that that's that's got to be less. Um, so it's got to be obvious that disability is bad. Um, when in fact, if you actually look at the testimony of disabled people and how they talk about their experiences, um, disability is a lot more than just take a normal person and take a few things away. Um, disability is a much more, uh, is a much richer, much, um, much more varied experience than that. And I think people focus on what disabled people don't have um, and what they can't do, um, and they forget to listen to disabled people about the ways in which their lives are enriched. The ways in which you know, because they do things differently, because they often navigate the world very differently than non-disabled people do, um, they have often unique and very different experiences um, that they can find valuable. Um, so I th- I think. Um, I think a lot of times the way in which we think it's obvious that um, disability is just something that's bad for you has to do with not fully understanding um, what it is to be disabled, um, what disabled people say about their own experience. Um, So the way that I try to argue for the mere difference view is by first of all saying just how strong a commitment. Um, what I call the bad difference view is, and then looking at the testimony of that we get from disabled people, the ways that disabled people describe their experiences, these kind of things, and um, trying to give an argument that um, the the strength of the claims that you would have to make for bad difference views aren't justified given what we actually know about disabled people and what they say about their experiences, what they say about their own well-being that kind
0: of thing. Excellent. So I want to get to, um, uh, uh to the discussion about, uh, testimony, uh, in the book, mm-hmm. but, uh, before that, could you spell out the, so your, your view is a particular kind of mere difference view, what yes. you call a value neutral, uh, version of the mere difference view. Um, before we get to the testimony, uh, uh stuff, could, could you, could you spell out a little bit what the value neutral version of the mere difference view looks like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, a big part of what I was trying to do in uh, the book was to steer what I thought of as a uh, as a middle ground um, between sort of what might be thought of as two extremes of uh, of parties to a conversation. <laughs> um, so on the one hand, you have what I take is the the. Both maybe what's the common sense position, but also just the, the, the typical position in analytic philosophy, which is just it's super obvious that disability is bad for you um, in a way that is independent of how disabled people are treated um, in a way such that we could say there's this tight counterfactual connection between disability and uh, being worse off. Um, having less well-being or having a lower level of well-being than non-disabled people. Um, on the other hand, there are views like the social model of disability, um, which I think maybe in some cases uh, they strike people as they strike people as too strong. Um, they strike me as too strong, um, and I think sometimes people have been pushed to say things that are stronger than they need to be um, because there's this thought that, okay, if you want to deny that disability is bad, um, if you want to deny that there's this tight connection between um, disability and reduction in well-being, then you have to make this move that says all the bad effects of disability are... um, just a result of how disabled people are treated. Right. Um, So if we treated disabled people better, um, those bad effects would go away. Um, And personally, I don't find that plausible. Um, But I also don't think that you need to say that uh, to hold a mere difference view. Um, So I think that there's a lot of things um, about at least some disabilities that... um, you know, would be difficult, would be hard, would be complicated, even in the absence of social um, prejudice against disabled people. Um, so some disabilities are painful, some disabilities require ongoing medical care, um, some disabilities are degenerative, so on and so on and so on. Um, and these are just, um, you know, that's, that's the truth, that's the, that's the, uh, the, you know, what disability is like, uh, for a lot of people. Um, And I think it's important to be honest about that. Um, And to say, Yeah, look, there, there are some things about being disabled, that for a lot of people are difficult and are hard, um, and probably still would be hard, although, you know, no doubt easier, um, even in the absence of social prejudice. Um, But there are also some things about often those very same disabilities um, that are good and that are valuable and that enrich your life. Um, So I guess the view that I wanted to defend tries to... Um, have a more nuanced picture of disability where, you know, in a way, disability is a many-splendored thing. Um, (laughs) Disability is complicated. When it comes to uh, well-being, disability is a mixed bag. Um, But I think that makes disability actually pretty similar to um, a lot of other features that are socially significant, like sex, like sexual orientation. Um... In a way that, yeah, you know, oftentimes they are uh, both uh, in terms of how people treat you based on them, but also just in terms of your experience of them independent of um, how people treat you. Um, They they can be a real mixed bag. They can have some things that are good and some things that are bad and some things that you value and some things that you wish were different. (laughs) Um, And that's consistent with saying on the whole that by themselves they don't make you better they don't make you worse. They're just different, um, or they're just, you know, they're just neutral. I see. Um, I see. So the idea, for this this view that I call the um, the value neutral uh, view of disability, um, is that disability by itself is not the kind of thing in virtue of which a life goes better or in virtue of which a life goes worse. Um, but that is consistent with disability sometimes or even always, um, being something that we can say in a restricted sense um, is a harm. So a harm with respect to some features or with respect to sometimes. Um, And that's also consistent with disability being something that on the whole is bad for some people, um, depending on what it's combined with, depending on, um, you know, what people want, what their projects are, what kind of lives they're trying to lead. Um, it's also consistent with it being something that, you know, makes some people's lives go better. Um, sure. I think we don't want to, you know, forget forget that side of the equation either. Um, so. Um, you know, I think some, sometimes you, you see these arguments that, that kind of uh, move like this. They say, um, you know, listening to classical music. I don't know why it's always classical music.
0: Because um, <laughs> there are a lot of snobs in philosophy.
1: <laughs> it, it, it can never be punk rock. Um, uh, but uh, listening to classical music is good. Um, we need to be able to say it's just valuable. That's something that's valuable. Um, if you're deaf... Um, you can't listen to, you can't appreciate your, at least you can't auditorily appreciate classical music. Um, so that's a good thing that you miss out on. Um, therefore it is worse to be deaf than to be hearing. Um, and then they say, so if you think that it's not worse to be deaf than to be hearing, you have to deny, um, that there's value to listening to classical music. Um, (laughs) I've seen this argument in print multiple times.
0: Yeah. yeah, And it's, I mean, it's obviously crazy. I I mean, it's obviously bad. Let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, yeah. So, um, so I think the person who wants to defend the idea that it's not worse to be disabled can say, look, sure. Yes. It is great to listen to classical music. Okay. You know, if, if you want to, um, classical music or indeed punk rock, um, (laughs) And that's great. And that's something, yes, that if you are deaf, you cannot auditorily appreciate classical music. And so if you have this like strong objectivist theory um, of value, yes, that's something of value that you miss out on. Um, there are lots of things about deaf people's experiences that are also valuable right. um, that your average hearing person misses out on. Right. So um, there is the, uh, you know, the the linguistic experience of people whose first language is a signed language rather mm-hmm. than a spoken language. Um, there's the experience. So I have a, I have a friend who, uh, is an ASL speaker and, uh, she talks, she frequently talks about how unexpressive spoken languages, um, and how frustrating she finds it, um, right. to have to like translate things into, into spoken language because she can't, she can't put the same emphasis on things, right. um, that she would like to. Um, and, uh, so she just really prefers ASL compared to spoken language. Um, uh, there's also, I, I read this great article by a woman, um, who's deaf, who talked about the incredible sensory experience and she, she actually has uh, hearing aids, but she says so as she gets older, she's just wearing them less and less. <laughs> um, uh, but the incredible experience of going someplace like New York city and just not having her hearing aids, having them, um, out or totally turned off and just walking through crowds and bustle and everything and having nothing but silence. Um, And just the incredible sensory experience that is Um, the experience of uh, experiencing music through vibration rather than through sound. Um, In London once a year, um, uh, uh, there's a local uh, uh, organization of deaf people that puts on a deaf dance party. Mm-hmm. Um, and they has this, they have this big room that has a sprung floor and they get these giant speakers and they take them and they flip them over. So they put them all face down on the floor, um, and then turn them up as high as they go. And then, so, uh, deaf people and for the ones that have hearing aids, they'll all take out their hearing aids and then they just go. And, uh, it looks like they're dancing to nothing if you've ever seen it. Right. Um, but it's amazing, and they talk about the experience of that. You know, I have no phenomenological concept of as a hearing person, but they talk about what it's like to um, basically to dance to vibration. Um, so uh, you know, these kind of things that are just just different experiences of the world also seem valuable. You know, right. um, so you can grant yes, of course, um, fine. Listening listening to classical music, that's great. And yes, there's a sense in which as people who don't listen to class who are unable to listen to classical music there's a sense in which um deaf people miss out on something but there's also a lot of things that deaf people have that are unique and special um that hearing people don't have um and so i think the idea behind the the view that i wanted to defend is to say um yeah you can say that uh disabilities are sometimes or always with respect to a specific feature or to a specific time or something like that something that is you know in a local sense a harm for you but the very same thing that's in a local sense a harm for you or in a local sense bad for you can also be in other areas in other senses good for you such that on the whole it's not bad or good for you it's just um, it's just different right. um, that's also consistent with you um, Disability, even in the absence of social prejudice being bad for some people. Um, so I don't think that being deaf is uh, bad for a lot of the deaf people that I know. I think it was bad for Beethoven. Yeah. Yes. You know? um, if, if your whole world revolves around the auditory experience of music, I think it's overly... Um, it seems kind of imperialistic to say no, 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 we, you know, we have to have a view of disability that says deafness wasn't bad for Beethoven. Sure. I mean, you know, deafness is bad, um, was bad for Beethoven. I think it should be consistent with a mere difference of disability that says disability can be bad for individual people, depending on what they want, depending on their projects, depending on, um, all sorts of things about them. And that's consistent with disability itself being something that is neutral. Um,
0: Right. And that also, um, enables you to, um, uh, to resist, uh, what I think is also you might call it the X, I think in the book you call it the X-Men theory, (laughs) which is wherever there's a disability, there is this heightened other power that comes into being.
1: Yeah. The only only way to say that disability isn't bad would be to somehow say that like disabled people get extra special senses or extra special (laughs) abilities or something like that, which of course is absurd. Um, (laughs) And uh, I think sometimes it's it's easy to read the idea that like, oh, you know, so the same thing that uh, uh, is is bad for you in some places would could also be good for you in other places Um, as. Oh, so that the only way it could be good for you in other places, like if you lose an ability here, then you have to gain some other ability um, somewhere else. Um, Whereas I think what a lot of disabled people actually say are things that i mean unless we have a very 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 loose understanding of abilities um it's not it, it's nothing to do with like gaining heightened senses or you know you hear people talking about things like oh you know blind people have uh better hearing or things like that which it is true um, <laughs> but, uh, um certainly doesn't seem like a model that's generalizable for for disabilities but um there is a so Harriet McBride Johnson had this uh, wonderful uh descriptions in her autobiography, um, where she talked about just her sensory experience as a, a wheelchair user, um, of just navigating the world from a different height than most people do, and from a different vantage point than most people do, and how much she valued um, her experience of just doing things differently. Than people, uh, than than other people do, Um, and how much she enjoyed uh, what she got to see and how she got to uh, see people who typically didn't see her and didn't look at her. Um, She could get this, uh, you know, kind of had a different eye level, um, different view of the world, um, which she found really experientially valuable that was something she um she really enjoyed um Simi Linton who is a a disability rights activist and a, a disability studies scholar talks about um her experience of uh being becoming disabled as i think she was she was in her early 20s when she became disabled um and how much that was liberating for her as a woman because she had had you know she had faced all these pressures as a young woman of like here's what your body has to be like, here's what you have to look like, here's, you know, so all these pressures that young women face um, that she had found so stressful and so like she had this impossible standard to uh, live up to. Um, So, you know, all these standards of how you ought to be. Um, But of course there's a sense in which ought implies can. Um, And then suddenly she had this body that was irrevocably different. And she said it was just the most liberating thing that had ever happened to her right. um, because she had it was like she had permission to be abnormal. She had permission to just say, do you know what, actually, I'm not going to dress like that. I'm not going to do my hair like that. I'm not going to wear makeup. I'm not, you know, just like suddenly she could be different because she had to be different. Right. Um, so it's these kind of things that people um that people often reference um, when they're talking about their experiences of disability. It's very much not, uh, you know, you you get these special heightened senses or something like that.
0: Um, (laughs) Well, so why don't we pick up there? Because, um, one of the, um, uh, sort of dimensions of the argument, um, uh, both respect with respect to, to uh, what, what we were just sort of indirectly talking about, which is taking the testimony of disabled people seriously in our theorizing about um, the, the philosophical questions that come up, um, but also taking seriously um uh, the 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 fact that uh, disability communities are often organized around a sense of pride and even celebration. Okay. Um, uh, can can you sort of tie those two pieces together? They seem to me conceptually a uh, uh, similar. Um, that you're, you're you're committed to this thought that th- whatever the philosophical story we tell or the ethical story we tell um, about uh, disabilities, um, we, we, we it would be uh, it would be wrong uh, both to lose sight of um uh the pride and uh celebratory character of um some of the activities that go on with disabled community with with um, persons in disabled communities um but also um that w- we can 't lose sight of the, the the philosophical significance of the testimony of disabled mm-hmm. people
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah so there's um the slogan of the um disability rights movement especially in america is nothing about us without us right um and there's a very specific reason why that became sort of a rallying cry um and it was because almost always um in um laws that had been passed uh, allegedly for the promotion of disabled people or for the protection of disabled people um were passed by non-disabled people without consulting disabled people and without reference to disabled people. So there was this idea that was typically implicit. Um, you know, it wasn't no, no one was around there twirling their mustaches and, uh, um, you know, cackling <laughs> that they were, kind of, <laughs> uh, were going to screw over disabled people. But um, there was this idea that um, non-disabled people um, have the ability without talking to disabled people, without asking disabled people, without, any, you know, to to know what's in disabled people's best interests, um, and to know what disabled people need, to know what disabled people want, um, to really have the ability to speak on their behalf. Um, And if you look back at the history of uh, protections for disabled people, laws for disabled people, um, social programs for disabled people, that typically ends in disaster. it doesn't. It doesn't go very well. Um, so the idea of nothing about us without us is um, basically just the very simple idea that if you want to know about the lives of disabled people, um, if you want to know what disabled people need, if you want to know what they want, you, sh- you need to ask them. Um, And it's a very striking feature about the history of disabled people um, and the history of uh, progress and disability rights that that very simple idea is something that disabled people have had to and continue to have to fight for. Um, Because there is this pernicious but very common idea um, that not only and often Often do we think that non-disabled people are a pretty good source of uh, knowing what's good for disabled people, but also often times that disabled people themselves are a pretty bad source um, of knowing what's good for disabled people, for all sorts of complicated reasons. Um, So this is, I think, a very, very uh, ubiquitous struggle for disabled people, is just getting people to listen to them. Um, getting people to pay attention to them, um, getting the opportunity to be heard. Um, So I think that certainly uh, a very common reaction um, to disability positive testimony, um, by which I mean disabled people who say that they value their disability, that their disability is something that is, uh, you know, important part of who they, who they are and uh they wouldn't want to be otherwise um they wouldn't want uh to be other than than how they are right um a very common response to this testimony is uh skepticism um people just they either reinterpret what is said um along the lines of that sort of tragic overcomer narrative that we talked about before. Like what people must be saying is, um, you know, I'm really glad that I am the person I am because I've overcome so much hardness. Um, or I, I've, I'm, I'm really glad that I'm the person I've become because I've, I've learned these lessons about perseverance or something like that. Even when that is explicitly not what the person is saying, (laughs) um, or people think, okay you know interesting that you would say that but you know natural for you to form an attachment to this fact about yourself um we shouldn't infer anything about that um we shouldn't infer from that anything about in general disability being a valuable part of human diversity or something like that because and then insert some sort of skeptical hypothesis. So because we should just interpret this as a certain type of problematic adaptive preference um, or we should just interpret this as status quo bias or we should just interpret this as et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah,
0: even like um, Stockholm syndrome kind of thoughts, Stockholm
1: right? <laughs> so people say this kind of thing. So they, they say, you know, <laughs> like maybe that's a politically expedient thing for you to say. Maybe that. um that's going to give you some cold comfort in, you know, your long nights of loneliness when you're there stuck with your disability. Um, So, you know, it would make sense that you would want to talk yourself into it. Um, But we shouldn't, we shouldn't really believe that that's true. Um, So it's maybe, it's maybe a sort a certain type of noble lie. Um, And it's maybe a good thing for people to believe, Um, but we shouldn't think it's true. Um, so I think this is a very, very uh, common form of skepticism about disability positive testimony. It's kind of like, oh, you know, good good for you for believing that. Um, it makes sense for you to, for it to believe that, but we shouldn't think it's true. Um, and uh, so I think the uh, one of the lines that I try to push um, in the book is that that type of skepticism, actually, if you look back at... Um, history of groups of people who have tried to speak back against uh, the way in which, um, you know, their, their particular group has been devalued or undervalued or stigmatized. Um, that type of skepticism has a not particularly attractive philosophical history. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, it should be deployed with caution. Right. I guess is uh is what I think about it That's not to say there aren't cases where you're not justified in uh, not believing what somebody says about their own well-being I think Stockholm syndrome is a great example of a <laughs> case where um, You know, I don't actually believe that being kidnapped is good for people just because they say it is Right. Um, so I think um You know, we we should never be in a position where we just treat people's first-person testimony as sacrosanct, unquestionable, or something like that. That's that's not how testimony works. Um, And it's also the case that, you know, I think uh, testimony should be criticizable. It should be the kind of thing that we interrogate, that we should, uh, you know, think through carefully. Um, But there is this worry that certain types of people are often thought of as less reliable um, or more prone to these kind of skeptical hypotheses, um, precisely because of stereotypes that we have about what kind of people are reliable or what kind of lives are good lives or that kind of thing. Um, so. Um, I invoke the idea that, uh, Miranda Fricker has this idea of, of testimonial injustice. <laughs> um, so the idea that because of a certain person's social position, because of the social position that they occupy, because of stereotypes we have about the kind of person that they are, or the kind of life they must lead, um, or something like that, uh, we treat them as less reliable sources of testimony. Um, and I think that in a lot of cases, that's what we're doing with disabled people um so i try to push the argument that in many cases we're not actually justified in um being as skeptical as we tend to be about this first person testimony um on pain of if we applied these kind of standards across the board we would just be generally skeptical of what people say about well being and we're not um so we do tend to be especially skeptical i think of disabled people um Often in a way that I think fits fairly well this pattern that uh, Fricker has fairly, um, I think, lucidly identified um, as what she calls testimonial injustice.
0: Well, wonderful. Um, so we're we we can keep talking because there's there's still things in, in the book that that are um, uh, are, are, are really really fascinating. Um, uh, sometimes when um, uh, when I've done these on 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 some books uh, at the end, the interview he says. Bob I said everything that was in the book now nobody has to go out and read it. Uh this is not the case with your book there are all kinds of things that we 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 just haven't had time to get to. But um so uh, Elizabeth I want to thank you uh, uh for your time. Um and so I usually uh end with 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 a final question uh which is um uh what's your next project?
1: So right now um I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking a lot about gender. Um huh. Yeah, I've got. I've just gotten really, um, I guess, fascinated by the idea of um, g- by general questions in social metaphysics, and, and you know, what unifies social groups, and um, uh, how we think about social position and, and um, uh, social stigma and uh, that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I've uh, I've started to think uh, quite a lot about uh, gender, um, and I'm particularly interested. Um, in the differences between different types of social categories, you know? Mm -hmm. So why might it be that I think uh, disability is a particularly um, embodied social category? So it really matters to whether you're disabled, um, what your body is like. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it matters less how you self-identify. So you can not self-identify as disabled and still be disabled, and you can self-identify as disabled and not be disabled. And I think that's not true of gender. Um, I think gender is maybe less embodied and more about identity. Um, Certainly, I don't think gender just is gender identity. I don't think that um, identity is what explains gender. But I do think that um, gender is maybe not as embodied as disability. And I I, I find that difference deeply puzzling um, and something that I I really want to think more about uh, in general. So...
0: Well that sounds that sounds great. Um thank you so much uh for your time today and um thank you listeners for uh joining us uh and tuning into the podcast and uh engaging with us in our discussion. Uh, again, uh the book is titled The Minority Body: A Theory of Disability. It's published by Oxford University Press and the author is uh, Elizabeth Barnes. Uh thanks everybody. Bye for now.